Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. We are delighted to have Dr. Richard Heinmarsh uh, from School of Environment and, uh, and also a member of uh, CGPP. Uh, today he is going to talk about nuclear disaster at Fukushima Daiichi, uh, which is really a topic I'm very much interested in as someone uh, born and uh, raised in Japan. Uh, he has uh, written on a variety of issues. Uh, he has produced seven books in the field of uh, environmental politics and, and policy and science, technology and uh, society studies. Um, he will talk about uh, 40 to 50 minutes and we will have uh, Q&A afterwards. Okay, thank you very much. I should qualify that those seven books, six are edited books and one's a monograph. But the six edited ones are all collections of people at the leading edge of the subjects, as this one is too. I've got three copies, but I'll pass them around in question time, when you've finished eating and cleaned your hands. <laughs> and also not to distract you from the presentation. So I start off this presentation, Nuclear Disaster, I'm doing an overview of this book, and the findings of how it was produced, why it was produced, the approach it uses, and so forth, and what the contributors did, and... Um, their findings and then the implications of that for, 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 for what came out of this whole thing, this exercise. I'm going to start off first with a clip. So we'll just go to this clip. Japan, 1945. One bomb demonstrates the awesome power of nuclear fission. That same power is now being harnessed for peaceful purposes but always remains potentially dangerous. 1979. An accident at Three Mile Island in Pennsylvania sends thousands fleeing. 1986. An explosion and full meltdown at Chernobyl in Ukraine causes panic across Europe. Nuclear plants worldwide were supposed to be getting safer. But in 2011, the Fukushima nuclear facility is first rocked by an earthquake. Then, a massive tsunami. Japan is about to enter another radiation nightmare. While the world is reminded of its double-edged pact with the atom. Disasters don't just happen. They're triggered by a chain of critical events. Unravel the clues and count down those final seconds from disaster. Okay, that's what we're doing. So disasters don't happen. They're triggered by a chain of critical events. Unravel the clues. So this is what this book is about. Noting the topicality of the issue, there were 73, over 73 million Google hits on the, uh, on the actual search term Fukushima within four months of the disaster, and there were another 22, over 22 million hits on Fukushima and radiation. Radiation is the key issue, one of the key issues about the whole thing. Whenever you hear radiation connected in the literature or from anybody um, about uh, radioactive pollution from waste dumps or nuclear power, there's a five-letter word which describes it starting with D, and it, it's called dread. That's how topical, that's why it's so topical, really. It's the only, only science, controversial science and technology I know of that conjures up that word. Initial official clues by the government and by the, developed by the um, electricity utility involved with the Fukushima prefecture, there's I think 10 prefectures, 10 or 11, and each one is controlled by a, a separate electricity utility which has monopoly over that prefecture. In the case of Fukushima, it was uh, the Fukushima prefecture was TEPCO, the Tokyo, Tokyo Energy Power Company, something like that. Um, so, they all pointed to natural causes first of all. Just like a lot of uh, disasters do, they blame nature on it. This is a quake. The quake had an impact on a section of northeast coast of Japan where there are located a series of nuclear power plants. So it was the quake, the biggest apparently in Japan. Uh, 100 k's off the coast, and you can see that uh, the Fukushima is just just there in the yellow the yellow nuclear uh, icon, and uh, you can see it's very close to South Korea too. The closest point South Korea at the bottom is um, is 200 k's 
from Japan. To the details of this, it was a magnitude 9 reverse fault. It's the biggest, one of the biggest you can get. Reverse fault mega thrust earthquake, the greatest Japan earthquake, 100 k's off the coast. It triggered huge tsunami waves of up to 40 metres, 130 feet. It hit the east coast, sweeping away entire towns, fishing ports, and severely damaging and destroying industrial and commercial zones. And over 15,000 people died from the two disasters together. So it also, it also breached the protective walls of the Fukushima Daiichi. You could see how low it was on the, on the coastline, couldn't you? That was one of the problems of the Fukushima Daiichi uh, power plant. This knocked out the mains electricity supply and the backup generators. The actual backup generators were underneath the power plant, underneath sea level. That supplied the six reactors' cooling systems and led to the meltdown, three reactor meltdowns at one, two, and three, damage to reactor four and the containment systems, which then led to an uncontrolled leak of radioactive materials, which still goes on today. Beyond the vicinity of the plant, up to about 100 k's outside so far as we know, but out, about 300 k's out to sea. So there's lots of uh, fish, and uh, there's a lot of fish, radioactive fish in Japan off the east coast now, and there's been radioactive organisms found two to 300 k's off the coast. Have very high levels. So it was rated a level 7 major accident, just the same as Chernobyl, and that's a major release of radioactive material with widespread health and environmental effects, requiring implementation of planning and extended countermeasures. These are the four reactors, so you can see the three got knocked out, they melt down, and the fourth one is where the containment shells got broken and the plutonium, uh, plutonium was, uh, releases occurred. Only natural causes, though, it was soon evident that it was much more than natural causes. Investigative research, which I did, you know, in uh, looking at this issue, revealed a long history of previous Japanese nuclear incidents and cover-ups about them, which got exposed and created a large distrust amongst many Japanese. So what was revealed was this dynamic political and policy context that pointed to a lot of problems that showed the vulner vulnerability of nuclear power plants to natural disasters in Japan, that this was socially constructed. That government and industry had been keenly criticised for decades for their apparent complicity in compromising nuclear power safety in the, in the context of uh, progress, trying to get up 30% uh, of uh, energy with nuclear power following the Second World War in reconstruction to become an industrial power. Uh, nuclear power was seen to be uh, an independent power source that they could develop themselves because they had very low natural resources for power. The Americans were involved in that too, Atoms for Peace, which is why they, the way they re, um, reframed nuclear power after setting off the two bombs. Um, this political and policy contact made the disaster that attracted to me, along with personal ones. These are the reasons for the book, which is the first topic we're going to look at. We've got the reasons for the book, its objectives, a potted background, the approach, the findings and implications. So the reasons for the book. Well, as it so happened by coincidence, I was in South Korea five days after the accident. or the Well, actually, some people say not to call it an accident. They call it a disaster or an incident. So I experienced, I was down uh, the south of Korea doing a keynote at a renewable energy conference about the problems of siting wind farms, which is very, very... Um, finds a lot of synergy with nuclear power stations in Japan. I then went up to Seoul to do a seminar there, and it was in the field of science, technology, and society studies, where I situated with environmental issues. And uh, I was doing one on the weak regulation of genetically modified organisms in Australia, and the release of um, GM crops. But they didn't say anything about, about this. Nobody was saying anything about this. Perhaps it was too, too early for the impact to actually hit the media. Anyway, after a few more days, suddenly the, the, um, the government radio announcement started to say, look, um, if the winds change perchance from, from, um, from east to west, because the winds blow off Japan to east and blowing it out to the sea, right? It's on the, it's on the east coast. If the winds change per, per sea, because there was a lot of anxiety now in the Korean population about this being so close. Seoul was only 1,400 k's from, from the site. And so for perhaps the first time, I also experienced the chilling fear of radioactive pollution. That night, my uh, wife rang up uh, and said, uh, please come home to Brisbane. And I said, why? What's the problem? Because I was out of touch with Brisbane. She said, I don't want to drown alone. 
And I said, what? She said, the floods were on. Right? It was the same time as a natural disaster in Brisbane, the floods. So I was happy to go into the floods and not stay in Korea. But anyway, so personally this made quite an indeligible impact on me and then professionally I was able to connect it to the publication Opportunity, which is this book, uh, by current current research focus in broader contexts of analysing socio-technological systems in context of sustainability and good governance on siting issues, you know, where you get these controversial technological assemblages put into the backyards of communities. Traveston Dam is one of them locally, for instance. Crossing gas, uh, anything you like, really. And this was about, and mine was actual focus was on wind farms. And uh, so there are adverse impacts, socially and naturally, if you like, that they're faced with. And also, it was my convenership of the Asia Pacific Science, Technology, and Society Network, which I founded in late 2008, which now has 300 members in the 11 countries of the Asia Pacific. And it's very well focused on um, SDS and environmental policy. Uh, with regard to, uh, you know, sorts of thing, energy policy, um, cloning, um, red biotechnology, um, all sorts of things to do with science and technology, e-waste, whatever you like. So this fitted this purview beautifully and provided an ideal platform to call for, for to, to, to book proposal and launch, and launch, try and get contributors from the actual region and from Japan. And so I have now got three chapters by Japanese authors that was great because they were able to do a critical account of the local reason, reasons, actors and policy dynamics that played a major part of the disaster. And they were able to decipher a lot of Japanese text in Japanese, of course, that informs this. Major histories of nuclear power in uh, Japan, for example. And this is one reason why this book is placed at the forefront of critical discussion of the disaster. It's the first anthology that's come out. There's been two previous books. Both have been done by an Australian and UK author, mainly from media releases and reports available on the web. So this gives a really good insight into a really early benchmarking account that can be referred to. So the book proposal was accepted by Routledge Studies on Science, Technologies and Society, and a key part of that negotiation was giving them a clear set of of objectives, which are these. (coughs) To critically reflect upon the social health, environmental, technological, political and policy issues of the disaster, to facilitate wider dialogue to better understand and respond to the disaster, to analyse why and how the disaster occurred, as well as the limited emergency responses, which were being highly criticised in in a lot of literature at that time and the media, to question the safety standards of nuclear power stations and their siting per se, and particularly in Japan, to identify and discuss important new socio-political phenomena, such as the impact of new media and social networking, practices of citizens, and to reflect on the possibility that Fukushima represents an emerging end of the so-called nuclear dream, which was presented in the 1950s, of course, to, to offer unlimited power in a clean way. All right, let's go to a part of background of things before and post-disaster to give you a bit of context for this, and uh, before looking at the book's approach and the contributors and so forth. So potted background, post-Fukushima, many Japanese citizens shifted from full or conditional support of nuclear power to gradual phase. Now, conditional meant that most Japanese communities did not want it in the backyard. When it came to actual siting of nuclear power plants, they didn't want it, but generally there was a quite passive sort of um, compliance, if you like, to nuclear power, except for except for some full-on activists and the anti-nuclear movement and the environmental movement. But in the 50s, they were quite, they were quite low. The conditional one, of course, followed the nuclear radiation from the two bombs. And so you've got an ambivalence in the population, sort of like 50, 50, 60, 40, so forth, between those for and against, or between sort of thing, all the way through. Radiation was a key issue on the land and water for the uh, public, so that was the key issue. And a strong public resentment over time, since the 50s, when it first started to be developed, about the mismanagement of nuclear safety and the disaster. And this goes back to many incidents of nuclear incidences in Japan over time. The key focus of hostile publics opposed to any renewal of, of nuclear power in Japan was the protection of children. This led to groups like Mothers Rise Against Nuclear Power and the Fukushima Network for Saving Children from Radiation. And these groups were furious that government guidelines 
had, had allowed for 34,000 schoolchildren in Fukushima City, for example, to be exposed to radiation doses that were 20 times more than the previously permissible levels, which were raised in, in legislation so that evacuation would not have to occur from Fukushima City with 300,000 people. Although 20% have already fled uh, who could afford it and have gone to different parts of Japan. Overall, high public anxiety, and also we saw the launch of the first Greens Party in Japan with an think of the evolution of nuclear power, strengthening the opposition. Overall, there was high public anxiety about Fukushima, as distrust and suspicion of the government and industry about the exact reasons for the disaster occurring, apart from the obvious natural ones. The media did not help the situation. During the early days of the disaster, the Japanese press reported no explosions had occurred, no more explosions would occur within hours of more explosions, no meltdowns had occurred, no radiation had been released, the effects of radiation release were too small to affect health, contamination was limited to people's clothes, not to food, for instance, or the soil or the air. No, no danger was posed by radioactive iodine and tap water, contaminated food was safe to eat, and the Japanese and the American and many other international press also systematically underrepresented the scale of the radiation releases and their ongoing dynamics and their probable health effects. In particular, media frames of no immediate effects and no acute effects function to mislead Japanese and other publics about the severity of releases. So in response to that, civic questions started to emerge, flooding the media and the civic sphere. Why had the official release of radiation data to inform citizens been so slow? It actually took, it was withheld from the public for 12 days after the crisis began. Why was radiation data unreliable and often without context for effective risk communication? In other words, it came sporadically, it was very technical, it wasn't very friendly to the normal citizens and citizen groups. Why was the evacuation of communities around the disaster site delayed? Uh, that was delayed for a few days. And why was there a communication gap between the government and the utility and the, and the electricity utility? In fact, the utility was actually, was actually uh, not to... What, what's happening here means the actual the, the, the Prime Minister and his Cabinet. There was actually some, some actual communication with the regulatory agency, but the regulatory agency is very pro-nuclear, so, so they were sort of stalling things too. These unanswered questions deepened perceptions of nuclear power as trustworthy, as well as the government and TEPCO, and they fewer preferences for non-nuclear and led to a high use of social media in response. So we saw citizens beginning to network madly through the internet and through uh, you know, cell phones and whatever, uh, tried to tell each other what was going on, you know, what the hell's going on here? We haven't got any radiation data, but we know there's been a three-reactor meltdown. In the absence of reliable, prompt and coherent official data, there were hundreds of Twitter conversations, hashtags like, you know, hash Fukushima and nuclear and meltdown. Wikipedia also compiled a day-by-day -day account of the disaster, including radiation readings where it could. So this reflected contemporary trends to science democratisation movements and science citizenship, which are very much on the uh, agenda these days worldwide. During the early days of the accident, or the incident, when TEPCO and the Japanese government held news briefings to provide minimal and somewhat optimistic information, which is the usual reaction of governments to disasters. Their reports were quickly interpreted, they were questioned, they were contradicted online by scientists and engineers who were dissenting, had dissenting views, to, and also government personnel sometimes too, and the other private individuals, and also there were sort of contradictions also by the nuclear industry and anti-nuclear sources, so it was fun for all. At the same time, at the international front, pressure was building. There was a global epitosemic shift now challenging a nuclear renaissance or rebuild, which was the nuclear industries madly trying to um, you know, get legitimacy after Chernobyl and um, uh, to now reframe themselves, despite the US not uh, having nuclear reactors for something like 20 years or more. They have now tried to reframe it as uh, clean, clean technology with no problems for for uh, you know, renewable energy or clean energy transitions with regard to climate change. So, so this sort of started to challenge it, especially with the German reactions and Switzerland and, uh, and other ones. Also, doubt was raised in financial circles about 
that even an advanced economy couldn't uh, master safety, let alone you know developing countries like North Korea or Iran and places like that. You know, after the International Atomic Energy Agency found Japan had underestimated the danger of, of tsunamis and failed to prepare adequate backup systems at the Fukushima power plant. This was reinforced by a French review. They have 58 reactors, the French. This was the head of the, of the French um, regulatory agency who, who was invited to do a review of Japan's regulatory system in 2007. He explicitly warned them of the shortcomings and recommended an independent watchdog to separate safety out oversight from the government ministry that promoted atomic power. So you can know there's a conflict of interest. And uh, it was more about promoting than safety. Safety was being compromised because there was a cosy relationship with the nuclear industry to, and, and also to progress nuclear power as fast as possible to electrify Japan. The um, Japanese government rejected the recommendations at the end of 2002, and the French now think that um, Fukushima is a collective failure of the Japanese authorities. These developments in turn seem to support a widely held criticism in Japan that there were collusive ties between the regulators and industry that had led to weak oversight and a failure to ensure adequate safety levels at the plant. And a similar assessment was made by a third-party 12-member inquiry panel appointed by the Japanese government March, April, May, three months after the disaster because of the enormous pressure hitting them about this disaster nationally and internationally. They actually... This was toned down in the next assessment by the same panel to blame it on more on natural, natural causes. So these clues begin to reveal Fukushima is caused by a natural disaster and what's called a chronic technological disaster. A chronic technological disaster also featured in Love Canal, that was the New York urban toxic waste disaster in the mid-70s, the Chernobyl and the Exxon Valdez, for example, of course the Titanic. Also, in any big stack-ups on freeways, you know, like the M1 in the UK, because of multiple cars, trucks, fogs, high speed. So, you know, this is like these are human-caused disasters, if you like. They're predicated on or, mitig and mit or mitigated, that should be, or not, by deliberative human decisions and resulting policies or lack thereof, and are defined by the interplay of the various stakeholders in involved. For disaster to occur, decisions had to be made or have to be made to allow the potentially dangerous activity to go on, or at a minimum, or not to oppose it. Once the initial decisions were made, additional decisions must follow concerning what safeguards, if any, should be put into effect to prevent the potential from being realised. Additional policies, or lack thereof, determine what response is possible in the event of an incident, and to a large extent, what the impact of the precipitating incidents will have on ecosystems, human populations and communities to what extent the impacts can be mitigated and, and the communities recover and so forth. All these featured in Fukushima. Some interplay reinforces, reinforces the perspective that chronic technological disasters should be understood from a process rather than an event perspective, which is how this book proceeds. These disasters that I've mentioned, Love Canal and Fukushima and uh, Exxon Valdez and so forth, they demonstrate these features, loss of control over an activity believed to be controllable. In some ways, this reflects the status of nuclear power plants as mega-technologies, according to Ulrich Beck. In certain circumstances, mega-technologies feature uncertain and unpredictable, multiple complex interactions that can't be adequately tested in labs or via computer simulations. Rather, their anticipated consequences can only be understood after they've actually been implemented or some sort of incident has occurred. To make matters worse in Japan, towards 54 nuclear reactors, it's in a very high seismic, uh, one of the highest seismic landscapes in the world of extreme coastal instability. Some figures say there's 200 earthquake and associated incidences each year. This is on the Pacific Basin Ring of Fire, which goes right round to New Zealand with all its thermal activity there. And they were in Taiwan and so forth. In fact, Japanese and nearby Taiwanese reactors are placed within the top risk group of the reactors in a very high seismic hazard. There's 34 of them are in, 20 of them are in that group. And um, there are over 600 nuclear reactors worldwide. So, one of these problems where I've said, just at the bottom here of this page, is concentrated sighting. So, this can be seen on the following map. If you can see that clearly, Rebecca? You can see that the Fukushima Daiichi on the right had six reactors, 
four had an accident. They were the ones, three meltdowns and one with a containment and it had, uh, was broken and so forth. You can see around Japan, all on, mostly on the coast, because they were using cool, cool, cooling water from seawater as a cheap alternative to, net, to water and because of problems about water restrictions, okay, water availability. So it's basically seawater, coastal, coastal areas. And what do you get on coastal areas? You get exposure to, to earthquakes happening all over the place, but you also get exposure to tsunamis. And also, these power plants have to be really embedded into the ground, really through huge poles because of the earthquake shaking. So it's not such a desirable place for a nuclear power plant. In addressing the objectives of the book, what was my approach? The approach is topic four. So it's SDS, which is Science, Technology and Society Studies, and this is a multidisciplinary field. So... SDS is a multidisciplinary field of research and inquiry that aims to better understand and rethink the relationship among science, technology and society, especially in relation to the political and social and increasingly the environmental with things like GMOs, dams and all sorts of technologies, e-waste and so forth. It follows a social constructivist analysis to achieve a good understanding of how and why science and technology here, in the case of nuclear energy, can be successful or unsuccessful in practice. So it challenges notions such as the technological determinism we're to blame. It aligns to policy analysis, qualitative policy analysis, for example, meta-policy analysis, institutional stakeholder analysis, and so forth. So I decided, because of my influences of Latour and others, to follow a cartographic approach over time, which is also called backward policy mapping, to map out the discursive terrain of the chronic technological disaster under the investigative eye, so as to say. And that came from, in this book, the contributors' analyses. This was actually my first foray into nuclear, and, but informed by you know, wind farm energy, which I had an ARC for, discovery, and so forth. So I was quite really immersed in citing issues now and the problems of energy in this area. What happened when I brought all the actual contributors together, what it suggested was a new concept of policy in action, which follows Latour's science in action approach of following scientists and engineers around in their labs to reveal their political and policy actual dealings as well as their scientific practices. Typical research questions were, how do we understand the way in which decisions were made concerning nuclear power development, regulation, siting, radiation monitoring? Who, re who represented the driving forces behind the, the, the social shaping of these decisions? And the attendant developments, what effects did these decisions have on nuclear power development, society and environment? Who participated in such decision making and how and who was left out or marginalised? In the disaster aftermath, what might have assisted governments and industries to do it better? And what questions are posed regarding new future energy pathways and sustainability? So these questions and the objectives and the contributors' responses revealed five very popular themes, which actually you could tell, except for the fourth one here, Fukushima is an envirotechnical disaster, which is a take by a particular scholar. But the other five are the... Ones, the ones in red are the ones I'm going to focus on, particularly the first three. But the fourth, the fifth one reveals, sort of like, brings it together in a way. So, let's have a look at the key findings. The first key finding, or the first theme on nuclear power safety and, and its social shaping, is by Hara, who explored the question of how and to what extent the belief of safety in nuclear power plants was shaped, was shaped by pro-nuclear interest in Japan contributed to he investigated the mechanisms and strategies employed to institutionally and public shape this belief of high safety through what amounted to quite complex socio-technological relationships over six decades, and that's mainly policy and politics. At the heart of the affair was the, how would you pronounce that? Genshiryokumura. Gen? Genshiryokumura. Right. <laughs> Being Australian, I won't try to, try to do it fast. A powerful closed circle of interests, government, industry and academic scientists on regulatory boards who were developing pro-nuclear research and, or, or nuclear research for development and so forth, who were directly engaged with uh, nuclear power technology promotion and business and regulation. In fact, um, 
And safety in many, because of this, safety in many ways was compromised to facilitate nuclear power programs. What that meant was the regulatory committees were stacked with pro-nuclear interests, government regulators and scientific researchers. One authoritative commentator called it regulatory for fraud. Often downplayed views, it often downplayed views of dissenting scientists and engineers like seismologists from research institutes who would challenge the impact of putting a power plant too close to a fault line. They would, and those views would be downplayed and marginalised. Um, about their volatility and worst case earthquake scenarios. Indeed, the Fukushima conditions were already forecast long before the accident occurred in arguments to the regulatory authorities, but they brushed it aside saying these claims were exaggerated and in a context of pushing forward nuclear progress. So compromises were made in siting, old reactors having extended lives and patched up for aging safety systems, and in operation. There are also many government agencies involved in what Harrah calls soft cell propaganda PR outfits, who are consistently claiming the safety success of nuclear, Japanese nuclear. For example, when Three Mile Island and Chernobyl both went off, there were claims of the Japanese media that it couldn't happen in Japan because, uh, because um, the, the Japan had much better safety systems. All this was done through a whole lot of communication channels. One was through the mass media. The mass media was tied up through millions and millions and millions of dollars of revenue from the utility operators, from the industry itself, and from government agencies promoting nuclear power. And also the threat, the implicit threat by the Japanese government that if they didn't toe the line a lot too pro-nuclear, then they would bring in more stringent broadcasting conditions and media conditions. Thank you. So another key theme was flawed sighting. Jiraku? Yes. A long, uh, he outlines in his chapter a long-held strategy of, um, from the 50s of targeting so-called nuclear villages or industry towns, peripheral or economically disadvantaged rural communities, secured through a range of government subsidies and incentives and legislation to counter those against. And this was because the majority of uh, Japanese societies, once you got into the country, if you wanted to put a power plant in their backyard, would say, no, we don't want it. And that is very much up to the local jurisdiction to decide. So this led to buying off um, of communities who wanted to develop, you know, who were disadvantaged. Also, most of them had low social capital. They had low political capital. Many ways that they were, were vulnerable to this type of approach. This led to concentrated siting, which means multiple reactors at one site. From, post-late 1970 in particular. And this led to negative characteristics of poor sighting. So it wasn't so much technical sighting, it was the social, but it was sort of like a, a manipulated social sighting to get the sighting in the first place. So some of them weren't exactly sighted in the best places for safety conditions. A diagram explains this a bit better. You can see down the bottom that the, the x-axis, you've got 66, 68, 70. That was from the 50s to that time, they were putting in single reactors, right, in these places. Then they wanted to extend nuclear power and expand it to its full capacity of 30%. So they went back to a lot of, so it became increasingly difficult to get it into other places besides sites that already had them. They offered new rounds of incentives, both the industry and the government and special legislation to, to enable all this. So you can see the black line is where these sites are, and the actual, the, the blue line going up is where the reactors are, you see? So you can see that's concentrated sighting. And that's why you've got six at Fukushima Daiichi, you've got four at Daini 15 k's away, you've got seven across the coast at another one, and so forth. One of the highest concentration ever in the world, except for a couple of, a couple of examples in India and the US. Um, okay, so on to other nuclear power siting problems. I sort of looked at the inadequacy of public communication. To sum this up, there was very, very little public engagement with, with communities that were taking nuclear, that were being tried to negotiate to take, take these sites and multiple sites. In fact, the, the actual aim was to silence any opposition, so community engagement wasn't really done at all, despite Japan having a democratic um, sort of thrust in the area. In this area, it wasn't done. It was actually opposed by, by the uh, regulatory authorities. It was very easy to get regulate, regulatory permission, you just needed it from the governor, from the fishing communities on the coast to cooperatives who might suffer because of uh, radioact 
active uh, water being pumped in and spoiling the fish, or hot water, sorry. And so you need to compensate them. And uh, so it was actually community engagement was targeted at publics to get them to support you know, authoritative figures like the governor who would say, who would say yes or sort of no. So this led to, again, it facilitated poor sighting and concentrated sighting and poor selection of sighting because you didn't get those social knowledges about place, about um, a local place perspectives, about whether this was good or bad to do it here and so forth. And uh, so this actually made it a, a, a decoupled socio-technological system. The technological, the technical was decoupled from the social. And um, that caused in uh, a breakdown, if you like. It helped create a, break, a dysfunctional system with poor concentrated sighting and selection of sites. All right, so anyway, my, my foundings for better participatory approaches aligned with some of the Japanese STS researchers. Now the radiation problems. This was an interesting one. Radiation problems were about... It was the case that just like evacuation was delayed and inhibited by a lack of transparent communication, that vulnerable populations I indicated before had insufficient information about their radiation exposure. And so, as I said before, this emerged, social media uh, emerged very quickly. And uh, so, this mob, Atsuro Morita et al., they investigated the role of this in the measurement of radiation, radioactive levels in, in, in Japan, in, around Fukushima, and the stabilization of an emergent measurement infrastructure as the disaster was actually unfolding. So, they actually created a civic radiation map organised through ad hoc collaboration amongst a group of amateur uh, Japanese citizens. A lot of these amateurs were actually scientists from universities who were opposed to the whole, who were really, really upset about the whole thing, about the lack of radiation data from the authorities. And so this made radiation data publicly accessible. So what they did was they, they got all the radiation information they could, they added it to their own, which was happening through Geiger counters and local, local uh, measurements, and put it together and created a map. And um, this demonstrated, they, these authors say, effective online civic engagement in the measurement of radiation levels during the state of emergency. This is their map, Google map. And what was particularly important was to identify hotspots in neighbourhoods which weren't picked up by the official radiation. This, is after the, this was after the uh, release of radiation data as well. This also led to another chapter on civic radiation monitoring, and this was actually through... Hackerspace, Tokyo Hackerspace, which is uh, a lot of people who do all sorts of things with IT. They bring all art, music. Uh, in this case, they lent their expertise to helping citizens in um, around Fukushima and and in other places construct do-it-yourself Geiger counters to enable a grassroots citizen mobilisation to measure and share independent radiation on air, soil, food, and water over the web on different mobile platforms, Facebook, Google and so forth, exploring citizen scienceship, they analysed citizen motivations, a lot of this was about people wanting to be more certain about where they're going in their neighbourhood, it was a neighbourhood identity thing and helping the other, helping your friends. This was particularly the, the image up the right hand side, is actually a hotspot that's been identified and they've, and they've been able to say don't go here because you'll get radiation, which the large infrastructures can't pick up. So this was to deal with the complexity and uncertainty of radiation pollution for everyday citizens in the aftermath of Fukushima. These authors then advanced the citizen, citizen empowerment through grassroots techno movements and social media post-constructive participatory governance lessons for more effective disaster management in the future. All right, the future of nuclear energy. This theme was addressed by three chapters which address the objective, should we continue with, with nuclear power as a key technology for a low-carbon future. There are various ju justifications made by three chapters, from nuclear energy was unsustainable in terms of social aspects, system functionality, safety, radioactive waste pollution, and intergenerational ethics. But I'm going to focus just on, on Jim Fulks' book, I mean chapter. He reinforced that policymakers most often 
give priority to technical factors in siting and in operation and construction of nuclear power plants, capital and running costs, engineering risk analysis, construction time, grid stability, infrastructure requirements, and so forth. So he questioned this, and he actually aligns with me, saying the lack of the social in socio-technological systems. And because socio-technical systems, by their nature, are really coupled to link human and social values, behaviour, relationships, and institutions to science and technology. He um, looked for clues to exactly what was happening in Fukushima. He found common, there are common features to the failure of large-scale, technologically sophisticated systems, which again points to the decoupling of the technical and the social in these systems, and the extreme cause breakdown here disaster with regard to Fukushima Daiichi. He found the comparison of the Titanic and Fukushima an apt one. He found many reasons why they both failed, many similarities. This is what he found. Technical side large, technologically sophisticated and technologically complex systems sought to contain it. They both sought to contain it potentially catastrophic threat. They're protected by were supposed to be by design defence in depth, but actually they were poorly designed. There are many vital elements of the design safety measures worked as planned, but nevertheless they didn't prevent catastrophic failure. There was a reliance on a massively powerful heat source in both, um, the boiler reactors in the Titanic, for example, and the reactors in the, in, in, in the nuclear. And these posed a particular threat as cont containment of both failed. And they also demonstrated physical inadequacy in the face of known dangers. The social, key management approaches were dismissive of the dangers faced. They thought they had technological superiority over nature, for example. Each had prior warning of the risk of the natural event that ultimately overwhelmed them, and actually what might overwhelm them, and ignored it. There were poor management decisions at both when actually faced with the accident or incident. There was a lack of preparation for a catastrophic failure in the safety systems. Uh, the, safe, the final safety option to remove endangered people from the reach of the trip was undermined for, for, by extraneous cons considerations. For example, because management was so into, in the Titanic, was so into the belief that they had a, something that couldn't fail, they poorly informed the crew, the crew poorly informed the cabins. When it became more obvious, uh, the passengers were told to go to their, their cabins and, and waited out for a while. And... Um, this was uh, due to a reason found by both, that uh, both in, a, in, in the case of both the Titanic owners and the, and, a, and the nuclear power plant owners, they did not want to reveal the extent of the damage because of the reputation of their systems and the industry that supported them. So they, they dismissed the actual what was happening as, as incidental rather than major at first. The passengers on the Titanic, because they went to their cabins, when it was finally revealed what was happening, many of them chose to stay in the cabins thinking it was safer because of the, the hype about the Titanic, rather than getting to the lifeboats. There were failures in communication. At the, um, and at the boilers, actually, the boilers, they were trying to actually let off the steam and rake out the coal, but they forgot to actually handle the systems for manual control of diverting the water. The water came flooding in. The uh, Fukushima disaster, there were delays and failures in swamping the reactors with seawater because the owners didn't want to completely ruin them and, and didn't think it would, this would happen. And also, this, so this led to explosions even though control rods stopped the immediate chain reaction. Evacuation was delayed at, uh, also delayed in both, and, um, and so forth. So, the main points about nuclear energy folk and others is that and this, now we're going to key findings, uh, the second last topic. Japan's nuclear power governance system discounted no known safety problems of nuclear power both in operation and siting in operation. Sorry, repetitive. Limited technocratic approaches focused on technical data and expert perceptions overlooked the need for integrated or synergistic planning approaches of the social and technical parts of the system. In fact, the relational system components were seen largely as easy to manage isolated or separate parts. And also open to, but these were also open to compromise through a close-knit network of public officials and industry as proponents of nuclear energy, which led to weak regulation, seemingly reflecting increasing agency capture or dependence of the regulator tool on the nuclear industry, was the order of the day to facilitate nuclear development. Failure struck many 
decades, many times over many decades, with a string of nuclear incidents which gave clear warning of the problems of this approach, but they were ignored as exaggerated or, or no, sorry, we'll only take piecemeal approaches to, to address them. So there's a flawed management approach, well illustrating decoupled conditions of sociological, socio-technological systems. So to the implications, there's six groupings. The first is in safety. This is my first go, actually putting it into groupings. So first of all, decoupled interdependencies or cosy policy relationships between... So decoupled them, that's the implication. They needed to be decoupled, these cosy interdependent relationships between government regulators and the industry in order to ensure enhanced safety. But one Japanese view was that any representation of nuclear risk can inevitably only be limited there's always a possibility of technical and social failure to ensure safety. So his view was that we need changed perceptions of nuclear safety are the key to eliminating the waste of resources in Japan currently being allocated to nuclear power propaganda and compensation by which to improve the safety of nuclear power plants. That a precautionary approach is needed and always regarding nuclear safety as insufficient and requiring continuous care and improvement by applying both rigorous and alternative approaches to safety if they're to retain nuclear power as a future energy source. And also there are implications of exposures for workers, in this case the Fukushima 50, who stayed behind to try to operate the plant, and their families are undoubtedly areas that should be built into building understandings of, nu building understandings of nuclear accidents. Another one is the need for improved emergency responses at the local. These are just sort of two things that came out. The local level, the, the role of social media to contribute to better emergency responses globally. There was a case put forward for a nuclear swap team of uh, an international nuclear swap team as an emergency response group in the lack of, of that provision in the industry. Normally, at the moment, there's one in, a, in, in the US. They've, each nation has got little emergency sort of things. And the I, the International Agen Energy Agency, has various recommendations and, and, and measures. But this argument was that they were needed to, to improve this whole thing for emergency response teams to go to places. Issues of sovereignty, public legitimacy and all sorts of things. But this was on the notion that a, this is not the last severe nuclear accident. There have been 36 nuclear accidents since the first started, by the way. Uh, three have been major that we know of. Yeah. So, another implication, caution, we a new type of nuclear disasters. This is quite an important finding. So the key implication posed by the nuclear disaster is to interpret as an unusual combination of social and natural factors, especially at the major level. This did not occur at Chernobyl or Three Mile Island, so it offers a new type of major nuclear disaster of social, technological and natural disaster terrains. This interactivity then opens up a new complex questions about adequate reactor design, safety and siting, and thus also the adequacy of any emergency responses planned. And this is further compounded by climate change with escalating extreme weather events and on top of the hazardous seismic activities of the Pacific Basin Ring of Fire and elsewhere. All right, another one, number three. Number four is secure and sustainable energy futures. So questions of safety, complexity and socio-technical sophistication and functionality at these large-scale high, high, you know, systems, along with issues of trust, you know, public trust, social justice and inter intergenerational equity, around issues of irreversible health impacts and, and risks from nuclear uh, radioactive pollution, and of application of risk and withdrawal of policy support and safety review, then reduction of risk followed by continued support always to try and ensure risk, I mean to ensure um, safety, pose implications of the fragility and durability of nuclear energy in terms of investment, political acceptability and development. The compensation bill for Japan is estimated to be $124 billion US. So this raised implications of the likely shifts to alternatives by some nation states, like Germany and Japan itself, for the prospect of any nuclear renaissance globally, and also implications for the development of renewable energy technologies and carbon capture and storage it could be highly significant as it in efforts to create low-carbon systems without nuclear energy on fault. For example, in breaking news two days ago, Japan has finally decided to return to renewable energy in a major way, like Germany, and it's decided to phase out nuclear power. This is one of its first... Um, this is reportedly commissioned. This is the first major 
energy renewable projects slated for Tahara City, which is one of Japan's sunniest areas, covering 800,000 square feet, 67,500 megawatt hours of power. So they're planning to invest about 700 billion in renewable energy by 2030. The last two important implications. Regionally, it posed highly threatening transboundary implications for neighbouring countries like China, South Korea and Taiwan. This heightens regional implications of environmental health and social risk. So posed here, the implication is the need for a precautionary partnership approach between regional governance in regional governance on facility siting of nuclear power plants and the substance of future energy choices and mixes, mixes particularly as this area is a high seismic concern. Finally, we go to implications for new planning. This all informs new policy and planning approaches to the fundamental modification or redesign of these existing policy and planning systems to, to ones of going beyond these fragmented or so-called silo approaches to technological and environmental management, uh, ones that are integrated, where the, there's a re-evaluation of the role of experts in providing policy advice about the uses of science and technology. This new integrated management brings the whole thing together, except a decoupling of, of regulatory authorities from the development and promotional agencies, but of course interrelations. And more transparent and responsible civic regulatory style, reflecting one of good governance to better inform the issues and everybody about what's going on. In the final instance, this led to the overall implication that finishes the book, that the overall implication of this Fukushima disaster on top of Three Mile Island and Chernobyl and many other serious nuclear power incidents and accidents since the 50s has been and continues to to fundamentally reshape the way in which many people, regions and countries are now perceiving the risks of nuclear power in relation to health, safety, security, participation, good governance and the natural environment when considering future and sustainable energy pathways. Thanks very much and I'll pass these around. So there you have it. In a nutshell. Uh, then please join me thank, uh, thanking Dr. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.